0: I have a friend who uh, has a little boy about five years old, and uh, they were riding together in the uh, car one day when my friend tuned, turned to his son and said, uh, Bill, what do, you want to, what do you want to be when you grow up? The uh, little boy thought about the question for, for a few moments and he said, uh, I want to be myself. Uh, It's not a bad answer when you think about it. Uh, It does, however, have some difficulties. It raises a couple of uh, questions. Number one, what is myself? And what does it mean to become myself? And those are the questions that I hope we can answer from this text uh, this morning. This text was assigned to me, but actually if I had to select a text from these homilies, Uh, I would probably select this one, because I I think this is the one that teaches us how to internalize all the others. Uh, This is the wisdom that teaches us how to make divine wisdom our own. It's found in verse 23. Uh, Now, just a couple of introductory comments. As you know, the first chapters of Proverbs are a series of homilies or talks between a father uh, and his son. Uh, mothers are also uh, in the mix. Hebrew is gender sensitive when it comes to uh, fathers. Uh, in fact, there are a number of parallel statements in the Proverbs that bring mothers into the picture. Uh, Some don't despise the teaching of your father. Give heed to the Torah. In almost every case, it uses that word, the Torah, the law of your mother. It's the same word that's used of Moses' law. So she has equal and commensurate uh, authority in the home. It's uh, mother and father together instructing their offspring. A friend of mine afterwards came up and said, why is it I spent my son's entire growing up years teaching him how to play football, and when he finally made the NCAA and they would turn the TV, uh, turn the camera on him, he'd say, hi, Mom. Uh, Laughter Just a reminder that uh, moms are are an extremely important uh, part of this whole project of instructing our children. I would say, too, that the word sons is gender-inclusive. It refers to both sons and daughters. As you know, there are no daughters of God in the New Testament. We are all male and female sons of God. Uh, As I read through these, uh, these talks... Homilies, I think of them. It, was, it reminded me again of the talks that we parents have had with our kids. You know what, they, what we're talking about. The money talk and the keep your room clean talk. And the peer uh, talk. Uh, the birds and bees talk. Whatever you want to you call it. There is a difference, however. This is wisdom from above. Our talks are a mixture of truth and error. This is true uh, truth. The perspective of the book of Proverbs is that the same wisdom that designed and created and maintains the universe informs Israel's sages. So this is high wisdom. This is wisdom before the dawn of time. Uh, this truth is this wisdom is not a mixture of folly and wisdom. It is pure uh, wisdom. Now, let's look at our passage, Proverbs 20, 20 through 27. Now, I'm going to spend the bulk of my time on verse 23 because that's the, really the central uh, feature of this entire uh, talk, but I'll just speak briefly about the verses before and after. My son, uh, that's the marker that you find throughout these talks, distinguishing one from another. My son... Give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. This is just simple Hebrew poetic parallelism, one line, another line that reinforces it. And the Father's point is listen up, pay attention. Interesting word, incline your ear, it means to bend way over, and pay complete attention. One reason civilization makes no progress from one generation to the next is that the younger generation does not listen to their elders. So each generation must learn afresh all the hard lessons that the prior generation had to learn. You may remember the, the famous uh, statement by Mark Twain. He went away from home and, uh, as a fairly young man and he couldn't believe how stupid his old man was. And After he came back in a number of years and had been knocked around by life, I bet he was amazed at how much the old man had learned. Um, <laughs> there is wisdom in, there can, I'll put it this way, there can be wisdom in the older generation. So wisdom from whatever source is something to be attended to. Verse 21, do not let them, that is the Father's wise words, depart from your eyes, guard them in the midst of your heart. Uh, I think Solomon is using eyes here symbolically, for as we do, when we say, oh, I see something. He's speaking about the functions of the mind, reasoning, understanding, judging, critiquing, concluding. And then we say, ah, I see. Someone tells us something. It's a little bit mysterious at first. The longer we think about it, we begin to, we begin to understand it. We see it. And in that sense, we need to open our eyes. Jesus, or excuse me, Paul, in fact, said, may the eyes of your heart be open. And then another place, the eyes of your understanding, be open. So he's really talking about insight, developing insight uh, into these uh, ideas. We must ponder wisdom, seek to understand it, and put it, tuck it away deep down in our hearts, internalize it, make wisdom our wisdom, make divine wisdom wisdom that's in our hearts. That's how we become wise. Uh, I wrote my son... Uh, Brian, this last week, and asked him if he had any comments on this passage. And he brought to my mind Paul's words in Philippians 4, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is any praise, meditate on these things. The word means ponder, think about them. Uh, Paul in another place says think about these things and the Lord will give you understanding in all things so here's what here's what the Father is saying listen to what I have to say and then think about it ponder these words meditate on them and tuck them away in your heart and verse 22 has the reason for very important uh, conjunction for their life to those who find them and health to all their flesh Here, here is the reason to make the wisdom and the proverbs, your own wisdom. it's good for you. The same reason my mother used to tell me to eat spinach. It's good for you, so she'd make you look like Popeye, she would say. I, I never wanted to look like Popeye, but I, I knew what she meant. Now my cardiologist is my mother. He tells me what what to eat. But the truth is the same, whether we're talking about food or thoughts. Thinking the right kind of thoughts, putting the right kind of thoughts into your heart, doing the right kind of things is good for you. It's true of wisdom as well as, as, well, as, well as food. Uh, it's been pointed out more than once that, that violating Israel's Torah, that is the law, the Ten Commandments and the interpretation of the Ten Commandments in the books that follow in the Old Testament... Is considered a sin against God's love. Violation of the tenets in the Proverbs is thought to be a violation of self-love. It's suicidal. You sin against yourself. The heart wants to be happy. You cannot not want to be happy. God made us that way. We want to be happy. But happiness is a byproduct. We all know that if we try to pursue happiness, it always vaporizes right in front of our eyes. But if you do the right thing, you'll, be, you'll become more of a happy person. You do the wrong thing, you become very, very unhappy. Now, that's nothing new. Ain't, you know, all of the ancient Greek philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Sophonies, all of those philosophers said the same thing virtue makes you happy, vice will make you, make you unhappy. It's Jesus' Beatitudes. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the meek. The word that he uses, blessed, is the Greek word makairos. is the same word that Plato and Aristotle and all these Greek thinkers used. It's just common sense as well as revelation that doing the right thing will make you blessed, happy. Now, the kind of happiness we usually think of is superficial and transient and subjective and based on circumstances. In fact, our word happy comes from a, a, an old English word, hap, that means chance. So we still have the word around in happenstance in that word. Uh, if I see someone walking down the hall and they have a goof grin on their face, and I say to them, what would you do, win the lottery? See that—that's that, that's circumstantial happiness. This is a deeper happiness. This is a deep-down tranquility—a sense that things are right in—in in here. Now, folly will not will not only make you do stupid things; it'll make you miserable. It'll make you unhappy. Doing the right thing will make you a very happy person. That's why. The Father says, above everything, guard your heart, because everything flows out of the heart. Happiness does, but a whole bunch of other things do as well. It is absolutely crucial that we guard our hearts. In fact, the way uh, the writer puts it, underscores that idea. Above everything, he says, the most important thing in the world, The, the, as philosophers say, sin qua non, the thing without which nothing of life is guarding your heart. Well, what does it mean to guard your heart? How in the world do you guard your heart? And what is your heart? That's an even bigger question. That's one of those questions uh, to which you always knew the answer until you were asked. Now, we use, uh, we use the word heart in a lot of ways. We're, you know, we can refer to the pump that's in the chest that circulates the blood. We can say, have a heart. Or we can sing, I left my heart in San Francisco, or at least Tony Bennett did. Uh, we can say, do this with all your heart. We have a lot of expressions. Have a heart, we say. But what is the heart, really? Let me back off a little bit and try to explain. There are a lot of ways to picture the self. Psychologists call them psychographs, pictures of the psyche, of the soul. We can say, I can look at you and I can say, the picture I get of you is that you're material and immaterial. The material part of you I can see sitting in the chairs. The immaterial part is hidden, it's secret, I can't see it. Now, sometimes I can. If you get angry, I can see it on your face and in your eyes. You know, if you're unhappy, you can have a scowl on your face, or you can have sad eyes or happy eyes. It shows on the outside. But basically, the immaterial part of you, which is essentially you, is, is unseen. It's hidden. So there's both something that's seen, something that's unseen. Another way of describing us, another pic- picture, another psychograph, is that we're body and soul. Same thing. We have a body and we have a soul. And the soul, we can divide into mind, emotions, and will. Or as Freud did, into id, ego, and superego. The id is the childish part of us, the savage part of us. The ego is, is the Latin word for I. It just means the self. Super ego is the conscience, the governing, ruling part of us. The, part of us that tells us the difference between right uh, and wrong. Uh, these are all pictures of the self, but they're never adequate because there is that elusive something about us, something mysterious that we can't quite get our minds around. It is the thing that's taking the picture. Now, let, let me illustrate. My 75th birthday, my family all got together and pooled their funds and bought me this amazing camera, professional camera, Canon D40, and it, you know, it does everything. It focuses, it figures out the aperture, and I don't have to do anything; to push a button. It's amazing. It can take pictures of anything I want to take pictures of. It can take pictures of anything i pointed out. There's only one thing it can't take a picture of. Itself. If I wanted to sell it on eBay, I'd have to go get another camera and take a picture of it, because it cannot take a picture of itself. No? Now, this is all very strange and all very mysterious. So that's what I'm trying to say. There is something hidden, something subterranean, something very deep. That we don't fully understand. In fact, Jeremiah says, only God knows the heart. We don't know our hearts. I don't know yours, and you don't know mine. But it is the deep, hidden part of us that says, this is my body. It's the eye that says, this is my body. It's the eye that says, this is my mind. See, I am not my body. Thank, thank goodness. I am not my mind. I may lose my mind, but I will still be me. I'll still have a heart. I'll be myself. Say. So it's the thing that uses the body. It's the thing that uses the mind, that has opinions, that expresses thoughts, that can, but, but it's not those things. It's something above and beyond and deeper and much more mysterious. It's this deep, deep abyss in us that we don't fully understand, but it, it's the true self. Now, I have a, an idea, I, I cannot for the like me prove this, but I have an idea that this is what God, Jesus is talking about in the, when he informs John in the book of Revelation, that in the end, God is going to give us a new name that nobody knows but God. I think that's the new name for ourself, the new self that he gives us at the end of time when his work is complete. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. I was walking in the park trying to think of what some way, you know, this is hard to explain. I was trying to think of some ways to illustrate it. I thought of two. Uh, have you ever been to uh, Big Spring over, uh, right outside of Yellowstone, Carolyn and I used to camp over there? It's the source of, uh, of Henry's Fork, of one fork of the Henry's Fork. Uh, it's a gorgeous spring, it's about 50, 100 feet across, probably 20 feet deep in the center, and just gin pure. You can look all the way to the bottom. You see these great big trout down there. You can't, can't fish for them That they're there. They just tantalize you. And uh, uh, and I thought about that, that spring. That's not the spring. That's not the, that's not the Henry's Fork. It's the source of the Henry's Fork. Now, everything that flows down the Henry's Fork flows out of that source. But they're two different things. The stream is not the source. Big Spring is the the source. Henry's Fork is the stream. And I thought of a tree. Uh, A a tree springs from a root, but the root is not the tree. It's just a root. There'd be no tree without a root, but the root is the hidden subterranean part of the tree. And it dawned on me as I was thinking about these things but those are exactly the two metaphors that James uses in James 3. I, I must have thought of them because somehow subconsciously I remembered what he said about the heart. Listen to this. He's talking about the tongue. Actually, that's where he starts. And he says, every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. And that's a true. That's true. You can tame anything, but he says you can't tame the tongue. It's incorrigible. With it we bless our... And now he goes on to talk about the incongruity of the tongue. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the image of God. Out of the mouth, same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My God, my brethren, these things ought not to be so. Boy, what a masterpiece of understatement. How, how is it that, uh, that I can bless God and praise Him and worship Him and turn around and say something really awful to my brother who's made in the image of God. And James says, what a strange thing. So when I say something really nasty to someone, it's coming out of some source that's really nasty. That's his point. Um, Does the spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Obviously not. Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or grapevines, bear figs? Thus... No spring yields both salt, water, and fresh. Again, you have to consider the source. You see, if, if I hit my hammer, uh, hit my finger with a hammer, and out come a string of words that I thought I had forgotten, and I look around to see, my, my first thought is to look around and see who heard it, and my second thought is to think, where in the world did that come from? That's not me. It is. <laughs> it is. It's coming from within. Somewhere along the line, I put that in my heart, and now it's coming out. That's Proverbs, uh, that's the Father's point. Be careful what you put in your heart, because one of these days, you can count on it, it's going to come out. You cannot hide it. And you you cannot say, that's not me, I was caught off guard. That is me, that came out of myself, you see. Out of my heart. That's why it's so important that we guard our heart. Uh, now, I want to come back to this verse in a moment, but uh, let's look on uh, quickly at the remaining verses. Uh, verse 24. Put, put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you. I don't think he's talking about our mouth here. He could be talking about uh, you know, our words being one of the issues of life. I think rather he's talking about words that we hear from others that, that come from other mouths. All day long, we're just being swamped by data from all around us, surrounded by mouths, if I can put it that way. Uh, the theater, literature, magazines, Internet, television, sitcoms, blogs, tech mas- text messages, most of which are neutral. Some are bad, some are good. But they just, we're, we're just bombarded by them. Through the eye gate, through the ear gate, they come in from every possible sense. And how do we know the voice of truth? See, uh, there's there no such thing as, well, there is absolute evil, but, but it's not usually presented to us that way. Everything that comes at us is a mixture of truth and error, and it's often very subtle. Satan, if nothing else, is very, very smart. Shakespeare said he's a gentleman. He doesn't come at us with obvious evil because it's, it's obvious. What he does is that he comes at us obliquely. And these messages we receive over and over and over again. How do we know what's true and what's false? What's wise and what's folly? What's constructive and what's destructive? What's helpful and what is is ruinous? How do we do that? How do we have that discernment? Well, we learn from Israel. Let me tell you what I mean. Paul said that one of the things that's unique about the Jews is that from them came the oracles of God. In other words, God picked out one nation. I don't know why he chose the Jews. He just did. Out of his sovereign providence, he chose one nation, and he chose to reveal himself to that one people, through their prophets. And they, in turn, gave us that revelation. Those are the oracles of God. So the one true source of wisdom is Israel, her prophets in the Old Testament, and preeminently Jesus and his apostles in the New Testament. Hebrews says, God who spoke in various ways through the prophets, has in these last days, that, that's our, our age, has in these last days spoken to us in the Son. So we can trust what Jesus has to say, and what his apostles have to say as true truth. And what we have to learn to do is to think God's thoughts after him. That's why we read the Bible, folks. That's why over and over again we, we, talk, we talk about the necessity of immersing ourselves daily in the Word of God to take out that book and read it and think about it and pray it into your heart. Because that's the one source of wisdom by which we can discern the difference between truth and error. And that's the wisdom that comes into our heart and that will ultimately flow out of our lives uh, to others. Now, it's a process. It takes time. You're not going to go home today and, and read the Bible and think that you've arrived. It will take 10, 20, 30, 50, 60, 70 years to get this into your heart. But but it 's a process that we need to begin now. How foolish we are to disregard this revelation that 's been given to us of the love and the goodness of God and the way to live life successfully, skillfully, without trashing our our lives and doing things that embitter us uh, and others now i I want to wrap up this. Uh, the last few verses. Just read them. I don't have time to comment on them. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Your pupils th- uh, look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Let your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or left. Remove your foot. Singular. Or don't take one step off the path. Remove your foot from evil. It's an admonition to be single-minded in our pursuit of divine wisdom. The uh, In the New Testament, the book of Hebrews quotes this passage and says make Straight paths for your feet. Paul says to rightly divide the word of truth. An interesting word comes from two Greek words. One that means straight. We get our word orthopedics or orthodontist from it. It's just the word ortho. Straight, cutting, cut straight. It's used of woodcutters, for example, that were cutting paths right, right through a forest. They cut straight to the goal. What's his point? Just be single-minded, resolute, determined in your pursuit of wisdom. Don't, don't stray off into, into other paths. Read other books, for goodness sake. We ought to be the best-read people in the world. You know, take advantage of our culture because there's so much good in it. But above all, pursue the wisdom that's from above because that's, it's from that that all the other issues of life proceed. Now, let me quickly review our thinking uh, just to tie some loose ends together. Wisdom instructs us Above everything else, guard your heart. The function of a guard is not to keep everybody out. It's to keep objectionable people out. You know, if I go up to an exclusive uh, New York restaurant and I don't have a uh, right clothes and, and uh, I don't have a reservation, uh, you know, they'll throw me out. If I have a reservation and, and I'm properly attired, they'll let me in. That's what a guard does. Keeps out inappropriate things, lets in things that, that are appropriate. Now, how do things get into my heart? Mostly through the eye gate and the ear gate, right? What we see and what we hear. Have all this data around us, flooding us. Comes in through the eyes, comes in through the ear. Goes into the heart. Remember that little song we used to sing in Sunday school? Uh... Actually, I I, I lied, didn't I, this morning. I said, I'm not going to sing it, but I ended up singing it. Um, And let's sing it, okay? Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Okay, come on, let's sing it. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. There's a Father up above looking down on us in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Actually there are motions that go with it. Oh be careful little ears what you hear. Oh be careful little ears what you hear. There's a father up above looking down on us in love. Yep yeah, be, be careful little ears what you hear. I've forgotten all the motions. Good job, but I have to get you up here to do it. <laughs> See, I must be careful what I take into my eyes and my ears and stand guard over my heart, lest foolishness take up residence there, lest unholy ideas and imaginations become my thoughts, my opinions, my theories, my course of action. You see, no one can put anything into your heart until you allow them to do so. You, people can express theories and thoughts, but they don't affect you until they become your thoughts and your opinions. You've taken them into yourself. You see, this mysterious part of us that we cannot quite put our fingers on. So what we need to do is to guard that self, that heart, and those things that will corrupt us. Uh, Suppose, for example, I read an article in Maxim or... GQ uh, magazine, you know, that men's magazine, and I look at the pictures of the men and women that grace its pages, and I buy the notion that life consists of the right clothes, the right car, the right cologne, the right cufflinks, the right drink, then I've become a GQ man. That's myself. Um, I can read uh, uh, Wall Street Journal. And I can learn a lot of true things, and I can also learn that greed is good. And if I believe that, if that becomes my thought, then i become a greedy man. I can read People Magazine or Cosmopolitan or Seventeen and learn that you can't be too rich or too thin, and if I really believe that, then those have become my thoughts. That's me. I can watch sitcoms, sitcoms, and hear a lot of foolishness and laugh at it because some of them are incredibly funny. Uh, Very often, error slides in under the guise of humor. And if I don't watch it, then those ideas, kind of casual sexual relationships and so forth, they become me. That's what I am. You can encounter foolishness in Reader's Digest, National Geographic, Ladies Home Journal, Field and Stream, Fly Fishing Magazine. It doesn't matter. It comes from all, all sources. Francis Schaeffer once pointed out that the most dangerous dangerous movie of the '60s was what? You know, I, when I read that, I thought *A Clockwork Orange*. That was immediately the thing that popped into my mind. You know what it was? He said it was *The Sound of Music*. Seriously, he was dead serious. You know, you know who Francis Schaeffer was? A philosopher of the '60s and '70s. So, *The Sound of Music*. Oh, what's wrong with the sound of music, we're going to say? Our children have all seen it. It's a wonderful little story about the Von Trapp family. Maria, this young lady, you know, finds her place there and eventually married. It's a wonderful story. Remember the scene where she's walking to the Von Trapp home and she's swinging her carpet bag? You remember what she's singing? I believe in me. And that's the very antithesis of faith. See, that's the lie. That Satan would love to have us incorporate into our thinking. I am what matter. I believe in me. I have everything it takes. See? Other than God is my life. Okay. Jesus had a lot to say about the heart. Uh, he said to the clergy of his day who accused him of being demon-possessed, How can you, be, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks... A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. See, the heart is something to treasure. Either out of the treasure comes evil, or out of the treasure comes good. A bit later, Jesus addressed a similar issue where the clergy complained that his disciples were eating with unwashed hands. It wasn't a matter of hygiene, it was just ritual rigmaroles. Jesus said, "Don't you understand that whatever enters the mouth and comes into the stomach and is and uh, and it and it's enters the mouth and goes into the stomach and, and is eliminated, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a person. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemy." So from, from whence comes these blasphemies that occasionally pop into our mind or out of our mouths? See they, some, some time, somewhere along the line, we've put it into our heart, and there, there it is, there's lying, and it comes out, because out of the heart come all the issues of life, but so does virtue. That's Jesus' point. He's talking about food, of course, but it could be words. What goes into my heart comes out. Garbage in, garbage out, and computer talk. Virtue in, virtue out. it's so, so important to guard your heart. Don't let things in your heart that will corrupt you. And the way we correct the things that we hear, the data that we hear, is through the Word of God. Now I want to tell you a story. I don't care if you remember anything else that I said this morning. I hope you'll remember this story. I used to work for the YMCA. Uh, I ran a day camp. for I was, uh, Those were my student days. And I ran a day camp program for indigent children from what was called the uh, Trinity River Bottoms. There was a shanty town uh, along the river in Dallas from which uh, came all these little little children. And uh, we we ran a five-day day day camp in cycles all summer, and we'd bring new kids up every five days. And I I really felt sorry for these little kids. They didn't have much going for them. And uh, it, it wasn't a Christian thing. The Y then was not at all a Christian organization. So I, I, because I was the director of the camp, uh, I decided that I would give a little homily every morning, a little sermon. So I did to all these little kids. And I made up a story about a, this is the first story I always told, told it on Monday. And uh, somehow it stuck with the kids. You, you know, They remembered it. And I made it up. It's kind of silly, but I hope it will stay with you. You see, there was this uh, uh, town up in the Swiss Alps, and it had this well that was known for having fresh, clear, sweet spring water. Travelers, climbers, climbers and others would come from miles around in order to drink from this well. One day, mountain Climber came through all exhausted and hot and tired from a day of uh, climbing in the the peaks. Dipped his uh, bucket in the uh, well and took a big drink, and that tasted terrible. Instead of Nice, clear, sweet spring, clear water. It was green, gray, green, greasy swamp water. Tasted terrible. It smelled awful. So he complained to the town council. The town council met and they all got together and to decided what they were gonna do. What should we do? How can we fix the well? An old fella in the back had a beard down to here, he stood up and he said, How can something clean come from something that's unclean? And I said, Ah he's senile, he's old, shut up, sit down. Anybody else have an idea? And somebody, oh, let's paint it. It's so, kind of rusty. So they bought a, a gallon of red paint, painted. And you know, then, then they went around, pumped the handle, and guess what came out? I'd say the kids. And half the time they'd say, fresh, sweet, clear, spring water. No, gray, gray, green, greasy, you know, swamp water. Yeah, they'd say well, uh, you know, they'd gather again and they'd talk about it, and this old man would say say the same thing, said the same thing. Every time, how can something clean come from something that's unclean? And the preacher said, Well, I'll preach a sermon to it. So he went out and got all lathered up and really, you know, preached one of his finest sermons. And they pumped the handle and out came gray, gray-green, greasy swamp water. So uh, uh school teacher said, Well, let's give it a lick, and that works with the kids. That always got a laugh. And uh, so he, you know, he rolled his sleeves up. And, gave, and every time they had a, I'd just string this thing out. You know, he'd just go on and on and on. And uh, every time the old man would stand up and he'd say, how can something clean come from something that's unclean? So in the end, they said to him, because there was no other solution, they tried everything, they said, why didn't you say that before? <laughs> and he said, I did. So they sent someone down to the well, and they found that people had been throwing trash into it for years, and so it was just garbage. No, it was no- the source was impure. So they bucketed out the well, and they let the spring water come back in, and they pumped the handle, and out came flat, fresh, clear, sweet spring water, and they put some kind of apparatus over the top to keep people from throwing trash in it, and it became the well it was before. Now the worst thing you can do with an analogy is explain it. So I'm not going to explain it. I just let you think about it, okay? How can something clean come from something that's unclean? Point made. Two comments to wrap this up. Progress in purifying our hearts is not like improvement in any other area. In other arenas, we make measurable progress. We finish assignments. We complete projects. We check things off. We get the job done. Guarding, maintaining, placing the right things in our heart is a lifetime project. Development and purity of heart is not straight-line progress. It will take a long time for some of us. When we stand before the Lord, there will there still be unconverted areas of our heart, but I want you to know, you don't have to be utterly pure of heart for God to embrace you. He loves you throughout the entire process second thing I want to say is you'll, you'll need a lot of help from above to keep your heart pure. There's an interesting addition to this text that's found in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the second oldest translation of, of the Old Testament. It's a Greek translation. The first translation was Aramaic. The second translation was Greek. It was done about 200 years before Christ. It was Jesus' Bible. It was the Apostles' Bible, the one from which they quoted, the one they read. And uh, and the Septuagint adds a clause to verse 27. It doesn't belong in the text. I think what it was, was the careful thinking of a wise scribe who was copying this section of the Proverbs and added his thoughts. It goes like this. Turn not to the right or to the left, for God knows the way, and he will make your path straight. He will make your path. It all depends on him. That's why the only way to move the wisdom that comes into our heads, into our hearts, is through prayer. That's the longest 18 inches in the world. It can't be done by reasoning, understanding, insight. It has to be done through prayer, by faith. It's by faith that we move wisdom into our hearts. Well, let's do that. Let's pray. And we'll ask the men to come forward as we do. Lord, may the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Put a guard over our heart. Protect us from evil. May we take the wisdom that you have imparted and implant it deep into our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to serve the elements of the Lord's table to you, and as we do so, would you simply reflect upon your own heart Will you think about the things that you know are there and the things that need to be purified. And spend this time reflecting upon God's love as it's demonstrated in the cross sagebrush out in the desert. God spoke to him from that from that bush. And Moses asked for God's name. God said, I am. What he meant is, I am a person. He's not a sacred tree. He's not a rock. He's not the sun or the moon or a light wave or a source of cosmic energy or a force. He's a person, just like you are. He has an ego. He's an eye. And he can be known. A.W. Tozer said, God is a person, and in the deep of his mighty nature, he thinks, wills, enjoys, feels, loves, desires, and suffers as any other person may. We are images of God. We are the most godlike beings on the face of the earth. We may, we may not act like it. I certainly don't. But there's nothing else in the universe that has what we have the capacity to be godlike and to communicate with him and to know him. Not as as, as some vague force out there, but as a person who loves us. And God was so intent upon revealing that love to us that he came to earth. The, the great manifestation of his love is the incarnation. And it's seen primarily in the cross that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son, to be the expiation for us. I came in here and sat down, and I looked up there, and I fell out of my chair. Do you see what's up there on the cross? It's a heart. God has a heart. He's a person. And he can be known. And the cross is the sign of that love that he has for us. Let's take the bread and remember him. So easy to forget. So many things that crowd in, so many thoughts that uh, trump the truth. Uh, we simply want to remember this morning that you are indeed a person who can be known and loved, and you took the initiative to show your love at first, and that at the cross, your outstretched arms is simply a symbol of your reaching out to us in love. Thank you. Amen.